Welcome to this month's edition of the World Trade Center Utah podcast. I'm Derek Miller, the president and CEO of the World Trade Center Utah. And on the podcast this month, we're going to discuss international trade news, Utah economic development, and ways to help you grow your business internationally. We will be discussing volunteerism with LaDawn Stoddard from USERV. And the main topic for this month's podcast is tax reform, something that we are all thinking about. And if you are doing business internationally, you are curious to know how tax reform is going to affect your company and your international business. To help address that issue, we will be joined by experts from both Deloitte and Clifton Larson Allen. Before we dive into the segments, I want to share with you our upcoming World Trade Center Utah events. On February 15th at 8 a.m., we will host the Consul General from Canada in one of our diplomatic breakfasts. That will be at the World Trade Center Utah offices. We also have on March 6th at 9 a.m., an international financing seminar where the speaker will be Troy Furman from the XM Bank. He is the Senior Vice President and General Counsel. And we are excited on March 8th, once again, to celebrate International Women's Day at 3 p.m. in partnership with the Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce. We will be discussing challenges and opportunities for women in international business. Let's go ahead and get started with today's first topic, volunteerism. This is the first segment of this month's podcast from the World Trade Center, Utah. This is the opportunity to highlight our Prosperity Project newsletter, which last month focused on volunteerism in Utah. It's an important part of our prosperity, important part of our culture in our state, and I'm glad to be able to welcome as my podcast guest, LaDon Stoddard from USERV Utah. LaDon, thanks for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. So let's just start, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with You Serve Utah, tell us a little bit about the organization, who you guys are, and what you do. We've been around for over 20 years. Um, there is actually, our formal name is the Utah Commission on Service and Volunteerism, and there is actually a commission like ours in every state in the country. Okay. Um, our commission was created originally to focus in on a federal program called AmeriCorps. Mm -hmm. And so we are the funder and the um, oversight agency for AmeriCorps programs across the state. Um, but in 1994, when our commission was created, they decided that they also wanted us to focus on a broader um, goal of just service and volunteerism in the state in general. And so we have, besides the AmeriCorps program within our organization, we have, um, a focus on what we call community engagement and that mainly means that we work with organizations on how to effectively use volunteers to be able to make the most impact for their organization for the community and for the state at large so, so does that mean that you're working directly with other volunteer organizations rather than the volunteers themselves? Typically, yes. So we work for any type of an organization that, that has volunteers. That could be a nonprofit. That could actually be a business that has a corporate employee volunteer program. So we try to um, focus on what are some of the best practices. We do a lot of trainings okay. um, specifically for nonprofits around volunteer engagement and volunteer management. 
Um, we do surveys of, of volunteers in general to try to get a sense for what they're seeing from their perspective, but then we also come at it with the um, nonprofit or the other types of organizations and say, let's talk about how you can best use volunteers for what you're trying to accomplish. I'm guessing because of the high rate of volunteerism in Utah that we also have a lot of organizations that use volunteers, that uh, that need volunteers. Is that true it's for Utah? It's true. It's interesting, though, because I think sometimes the number of individuals that actually want to get engaged can overwhelm the nonprofits mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And so, um, you know, through the holidays, when it, which we just went through with everyone wanting to give back in some way and just feeling that generous spirit, um, sometimes that is overwhelming for the nonprofits, and sometimes they are um, struggling with how to best use the, the individuals that really come to them and want to serve. And, and that's so, part of the training that you provide? It is. It's how do you provide a good volunteer experience? The worst thing you can do is have a volunteer that goes and has a horrible experience. Yeah. They don't go back, but then they also all tell all of their friends, yeah. right? And so um, that you don't want that to happen. So, so we really focus on how do you make sure they have a good experience, that you're also, we are really shifting into skills-based volunteerism. So are you thinking strategically about how you use the actual skills that individual has when they come to you? Um, you know, you've got, especially with corporate employee volunteer programs, you've got, you can have tech companies that want their, their, their employees want to get engaged using the technology skills that they have. You have finance people that may want to get engaged that way. It just varies. Um, but are they thinking really strategically about how could you use that that volunteer with a specific skill set? That's interesting. I had never thought about that before, but what a great uh, a great service you provide to help those organizations match up what the need is to what the skill set is. You referenced earlier um, the holiday season. And in fact, the uh, article that we did in the Prosperity uh, Newsletter for you serve Utah was at Christmas time during the holidays, and that was not a coincidence because a lot of people, including ourselves here at the World Trade Center Utah, were thinking about volunteerism and giving back to the community during that time of year. So, is that typical? I mean, do you see a big spike at that time of year, and then how do you manage for that? both the spike itself, but also in trying to smooth that out to make sure that you're getting volunteers throughout the year. Yeah, so what we, um, we run a lot of initiatives asking people to get engaged. We don't necessarily work directly with the volunteers, but we, we try to um, do publicity, marketing, those types of things to make them aware of how they could get engaged. Um, through the holidays, we actually did what we call called a holiday service pledge drive. And it said, look, you're here, you want to volunteer right now, and er almost everybody does mm -hmm. in some way, but nonprofits need volunteers all year long. Volunteer now through the holidays, but pledge to volunteer later on in the year at some other time. Um, getting people motivated to actually go in and pledge is an interesting dynamic in and of itself. But I think I heard from a lot of people that they saw a lot of our uh, media campaign around that. And it made them think, um, you know, we are, we're, we're, we naturally want to do it during the holidays, but we need to remember that there's other times during the year that they do need. So, so Utah is uh, number one in a lot of areas. And, you know, Utahns are, I think, by nature, pretty self-effacing and humble people. But we also like it when we get recognized <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like anyone else. 
And so one of our number ones is involunteerism. Talk about that and, and, and if you could get, get behind some of the numbers for us. It's pretty impressive actually. We're right at about 50% um, that of our population that does what they call formalized volunteering, which means they go to an organization. They don't just go to their neighbor and say, what do you need? But they're actually going to an organization and volunteering with a particular organization. Um, and that's, um, the national average is about 25. Um, we're only a couple of percentage points ahead of the next of number two, the one you know the states that are right behind us, and those rotate a little bit. It's been Idaho, Iowa, it, it Minnesota's been up there, um, but the main difference is what we call the intensity. So the number of hours that an individual volunteer gives on annual, on average here in Utah, is just under 80 hours a year. We're almost double the next closest state. 46 is the next closest state, and the national average is about 23. So it's, it's pretty impressive when you think about the time commitment. It's not just that the percentage that are volunteering, but it's actually the time, the amount of time they're actually giving, and it is significantly higher than anywhere else in the country. And I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but what do you attribute that to? There's What's a, going on in Utah that's a, so special? There's a variety of things, and it's hard to really pinpoint it. If if we could figure it out, other states would, I'm sure, try to try to jump on. Maybe board. we shouldn't get the secret out there. <laughs> then. I hope no one from Idaho is listening to this. I do think that um, there is a tie to the religious um, the religious component, but what that has done is created an environment in Utah that attracts other individuals that maybe aren't of the same religious um, denomination, but but love the values and the concepts. And so we really are a very family-oriented state. And what I think it, we can attribute it to is that parents take their kids and teach their kids how to volunteer. And those children grow up and just become, and just think that's what you do, right? You grow up, you become a parent, and you volunteer. You volunteer in your kid's classroom. You go into your, you, you coach your child's um, soccer team. You you just, you give back and, and um, it's just a natural part of the cycle and it just perpetuates itself over and over again. And I think as long as we see that family dynamic within the state of Utah, you're going to see it continue. When you were explaining that, it, it made me think of an opportunity that my family has um, around the holidays where at the invitation of Pamela, Pamela Atkinson, who we all know and love uh, and, and is so terrific for our community, but she a number of years ago invited myself and my family to go and to help serve meals at a homeless shelter at, at the holiday season. And so we've been doing that for so long now each year and we take our children with us that they've been doing it since the time they were five to now 15 to now my oldest son who's 21 and we see the same people every year and so they recognize hey you're taller than you were last year and it's been a really a, a nice experience for our family to have that continuity in our service but your kids are probably going to grow up and, and just recognize that that feel very that's a very natural thing to do and they'll show their kids yeah. that um, and for sure at the beginning it was not natural to them yes. they were felt very uncomfortable and in fact I remember my wife and I saying this this feeling of discomfort is good for them yes. that they're feeling uncomfortable but now they feel very comfortable going there which is also good for them no, it is. It's a. It's kind of an amazing um, phenomenon, and it's really very unique to Utah. It doesn't seem to happen as much in other states. 
um, and and I and I'm not sure I can explain why really, but um, there is the other side of that which I find think is very interesting is the same study that looks at the volunteering rates looks at what we call informal volunteering and which means just neighbor helping neighbor mm -hmm. and in Utah we're in we every year we we range somewhere between about 73 and 77 percent of our population that just naturally helps their neighbor on a regular basis yeah. Yeah. which is is you know that's a that's a pretty impressive it is well I've certainly been the recipient of that kind of service myself and I'm grateful for it I mentioned earlier that we did the article in the Prosperity Newsletter in December. Tell me, I mean, we did it intentionally, right? Not just because it was December and the holidays, but because volunteerism really does contribute to the prosperity of our state. Maybe we'll just make this the, the last question. Tell me, LaDon, in your opinion, and it's obviously an informed opinion because of all the great work that you do, uh, how does volunteering contribute to the great things that we see going on around our state and our prosperity? It's an interesting question that you pose because I actually had someone from um, on Capitol, at the state at the state capitol that asked me once, can we quantify the number of volunteers we have in our schools? Mm -hmm. Just for example. Um, because as a lot of people are aware, I think we, we hit the headlines pretty regularly on the cost per student that we, that we have um, or the, the amount of funding per student that goes into our school system. Um, based on some of that, you would think that we have students that don't do, don't achieve very well, or you know that there's some significant um, problems within potential problems within our school system. I think volunteers make up the difference in yeah. a lot of ways, and I think that there's so many areas of our state that that's true. Um, our social service sector, thousands and thousands of volunteers. Um, you know. Uh, the refugee community, the amount of volunteers, we had a couple years ago a call for people to assist refugees and a couple of the technology platforms were um, got so inundated with the individuals that were going on to say I'm willing to help that um, it crashed the platforms. Mm -hmm. I, it, when a call is put out for a need within the state of Utah, people respond and it, they respond at a significant rate and it, it makes a difference in general. I don't think you can listen to our governor, lieutenant governor talk without hearing them mention quite regularly volunteers in the state and what and how important they are to our state in general. I've noticed that too and in fact just yesterday I had the opportunity to listen to Governor Mitt Romney speak and he spoke on economic issues and what's happening in Utah and he related his experience in running the Olympics in 2002 in Utah and talked about that they needed 25,000 volunteers and they wondered can we get that many I mean is that even realistic and within just a few days of having the website up these were people who they had to do it 17 days in a row weren't getting paid and there were no prospects to get free tickets to any of the Olympic events as you might think there would be but there weren't he said within a few days on the website 45,000 people had volunteered yeah so. I had heard they turned turned massive numbers yeah. away so well thanks again for joining us on the podcast and thanks for the great work that you're doing for our listeners, if you haven't had the opportunity yet to read the article about LaDon and about volunteering in Utah and about you, you Serve Utah, check out our Prosperity Project newsletter. You can find it online at the World Trade Center Utah website. That's WTCUtah.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Make sure that you continue to hear about all the great things that 
Utahns are doing to make this a prosperous state. Next on our podcast, we're joined by James Guthrie. He provides international tax consulting and compliance services to companies that are engaged in international business, and he's with Clifton Larson Allen. James, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate the invitation. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. A lot of companies are thinking about this tax reform. We've got a lot of international companies here in Utah that are wondering how this impacts them. Tell us what you think these international companies ought to be focused on as far as a top item. The top item in my mind uh, is make sure that you understand the earnings of your businesses overseas. Now this is something that technical tax people talk about a lot, earnings and profits and how important that is. But a lot of tax reform in the international space is focused on earnings and profits. So get an understanding of where your business stands for the foreign earnings and profits is probably top. Knowing where your money's coming from, how you're earning it and where it's yeah, going, where always it an important topic. Yes. Highlight for our listeners this new participation exemption system and how that works. Well, the participation exemption is really an, an attempt of the U.S. government to make our tax system look like the tax systems of the other Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development countries in the world, the major trading partners. They all offer participation exemption because they're territorial. We've been a worldwide system and there's been a lot of pressure to move territorial. Well, the participation exemption is finally here, but it only applies to U.S. C corporations. It doesn't apply to the majority of the businesses across the country and the majority of the businesses I see here in Utah. So the participation exemption, the impact to the Utah company, if you're not a C corporation, you might have a surprise income inclusion for your 2017 tax year. And then once that income inclusion is done, it's business as usual, exactly what it always has been for the Utah flow-through business. One of the things that the tax reform bill talks about is passive and mobile income. Tell our listeners about that and how they've been impacted by the recent reform. Sure. Well, in worldwide uh, tax system, the IRS always had an anti-deferral rule. They were worried about wealthy individuals and businesses moving income overseas without economic substance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the passive rules were a way for the IRS to say, well, whether you bring the money back or not, we're going to tax it in the United States immediately. So those rules are still there and they've enhanced two of those rules because we did a lot of work in the 1980s and 1990s to get intellectual property located outside the United States. That intellectual property drives generation of passive income. So the IRS is very interested in making sure intellectual property stays in the United States and the revenues stay to get taxed here. So we have two new tax regimes. The first one, guilty, or global, uh, let's see if I can find the, uh, there it is, global intangible low taxed income. And this is the IRS looking at the return that your foreign subsidiary makes on tangible property. And if your foreign subsidiary generates a greater than 10% return, any excess earnings must be related to intellectual property and the IRS wants to tax that income 
right away whether you bring it back or not. That's the stick. On the carrot side, they created a new type of income. Uh, it is, again, let me try to find the acronym, FDII. It's Foreign Derived Intangible Income. So if I derive, make a patent, make intellectual property here in the United States, and I charge a royalty to somebody overseas, or I provide a service to somebody overseas, or I sell goods to somebody overseas, that foreign-derived intangible income gets a lower rate of taxation here in the United States. Guilty is a minimum tax. We want to tax the offshore excess returns now. FDII is a lower tax rate on intangible income. We want you to earn it here rather than abroad. Sounds like somebody was having fun late one night coming up with that acronym of guilty. Yes, yes, as they always do. I love it when Congress comes out with acronyms. Yeah. Uh, changes related to the foreign tax credit system. What do, what do our international businesses here in Utah need to know about that? The biggest change comes to the Utah C corporations. In the past, C corporations could claim a foreign tax credit for taxes they pay directly and for taxes paid by their foreign corporate subsidiaries when they receive a dividend from the subsidiary. Well, now that the dividends are no longer going to be taxable under the participation exemption to the C corporation, the foreign tax credits paid by the foreign corporation are no longer taxable. That indirect foreign tax credit is gone. The indirect foreign tax credit never existed for U.S. individuals and flow-throughs, but it did exist for corporations, it is now gone. But our anti-deferral rules still exist if you move the wrong type of income. I'm a Utah C corporation, I get the wrong type of income in my foreign company, the IRS is going to apply the anti-deferral rule, tax it in the United States immediately, and in that situation you do get the indirect credit, but that's under a different provision. Section 902 was repealed. Section 960 is still in place for the anti-deferral income inclusion. As you described that, and based on some of the other information you've shared, it occurs to me how important it is that these businesses understand these rules and get things set up the right way on the front end, rather than trying to figure it out on the back end, where in some cases it may be too late. Yes, sometimes it's too late and sometimes it's very expensive to fix the problems that come around because of changes in tax laws. And so getting a little advice up front pays big dividends on the back end. To get it done right up front, it's much easier to change the business when the law changes. Speaking about getting the right advice up front, are there other considerations, other key takeaways that Utah businesses ought to be aware of? I think that this, this tax reform, again, it's the largest tax reform we've had in a generation since 1986, and I would think that it's going to take a long time for us to fully digest what just happened. We need a lot of guidance from the Treasury Department and from the IRS to understand how to implement these rules. So I think the biggest takeaway, whether it's a purely domestic tax reform or these international provisions we've been talking about, make sure that your internal tax department is taking time to study this and understand the impact or make sure you get in touch with your tax advisors to understand how this tax reform will impact your business uh, because we don't want you paying all of your profits away to taxation we want you to keep it to grow your business well hopefully all of our listeners and all the businesses will have 
that kind of consulting advice that will help them to keep as much money as they can. We talked a little bit about getting things set up the right way at the beginning. Of course, we also need to talk about filing, something that happens sort of at the end of that process. Are there steps that Utah businesses should take to ensure that they're filing correctly? For any Utah C corporation uh, or any Utah business that owns a specified foreign corporation that has to take this surprise income inclusion onto their 2017 tax return, start now modeling out those earnings. There's two measurement dates for your 2017 earnings, November 2 and December 31. And then we have to figure out, well, of those earnings tied up in cash and cash equivalents, or are those earnings tied up in physical assets? Because the difference is a 15.5% tax rate for cash and cash equivalent earnings, 8% tax rate for physical asset earnings, and there's a lot of work to figure that out so that when you file your return, you get the right answer. Yeah. James, you've been generous with your time today. You've also been very gracious in writing a white paper that we are hosting on the World Trade Center Utah website. People can find us by searching World Trade Center Utah or looking us up directly at wtcutah.com. They can find your white paper. They can read more about the information that you've provided on this podcast. How can these companies contact you? It would be great. I'd welcome any contact. Uh, we can be reached in the office in Salt Lake City uh, at 801-364-4949. Uh, and my email address, james.guthrie at claconnect.com. And that information will be available uh, on the World Trade Center Utah website. Perfect. So again, we invite our listeners to go to the website, read the white paper, contact James, and get all the information that they need to be as successful as they can in helping to grow Utah's international business economy. James, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Derek. It was a pleasure. Next on our podcast, we have Bank Edwards join us, and we're grateful to get his over 27 years of transactional tax experience working at Deloitte and uh, we're excited to have him joining us out of Washington, D.C., where he heads the Washington National Tax Practice. And we're talking today specifically about some of the provisions that have the potential to impact international businesses as it relates to the recent tax reform. Banks, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much. It's uh, great to be here, and thanks for having me. So lots of companies... Uh, lots of expectations, uh, hopefully not lots of surprises, uh, but particularly for Utah businesses that are uh, focused on the international provisions. We know there are a lot of major corporate tax changes. What can you tell us about the international provisions of the recent tax reform? Absolutely. Uh, you know, first at a high level, the major change is that the U.S. has moved away from a worldwide system where foreign earnings were generally taxed in the U.S. when these earnings were repatriated as dividends. And because of the deferral element under that system, that is, you know, the U.S. generally didn't tax those foreign earnings until they were repatriated, many company, companies were simply keeping these earnings, i.e. cash, permanently reinvested offshore. 
the question is, you know, what type of system is the U.S. moving to under the new tax law? You hear a lot of people saying that we are moving to a territorial system, and this mainly is because of the new provision that now foreign-sourced dividends are no longer taxable to a U.S. corporate shareholder when they're repatriated, and that's via a 100% dividend received deduction, as long as certain ownership percentages are met, which are generally 10% or greater ownership, and certain holding periods are met, which is generally one year. So this is obviously, that provision is a big benefit to U.S. corporations wishing to get cash back on shore from its foreign operations. However, if you look at the entire, um, all the provisions under international tax reform, we really have not moved to a pure territorial system. What we have is a more of a hybrid system, and that's in large part of some of the other regimes that have put in place that, you know, you refer to as guilty and the base erosion measures. Um, so, for example, guilty, which is, you know, stands for global intangible low tax income, when you calculate guilty, their interactions with other areas of the tax law, and we're finding that the results are surprising uh, many U.S. multinationals. They're finding the new system is really more akin to one of current inclusion of foreign earnings, whether they're repatriated or not, but at, at much lower rates than they were being taxed before. So said another way, the, the deferral system of foreign earnings is generally no longer available for U.S. corporations that we had before. These foreign earnings are taxed currently each year in the U.S., whether repatriated or not, but they're taxed at lower tax rates, and when these earnings are actually repatriated to a corporate shareholder, they're no longer taxed because of the 100% dividend received deduction that I mentioned earlier. Now, in addition to guilty, there are a couple of other key provisions uh, worth mentioning, uh, the BEAT, as we said before, and also the uh, FDII provision. So, you know, quickly at a high level, you know, BEAT stands for Base Erosion and Anti-Abuse Tax, uh, which, as its name suggests, is intended to be a base erosion measure. But again, because of interactions with other provisions in the tax code, there's some surprises that the BEAT is really less of a true base erosion measure than one would think. Uh, the FDII provision, which is foreign-derived intangible income, that's, that's a benefit for U.S. corporations that generate certain types of income overseas. Specifically, FDII is income derived from sales of property, such as inventory, uh, from a U.S. corporation to a foreign person for foreign use, or the U.S. corporation could be receiving income by licensing IP to a foreign person for foreign use, or it could be providing services to a foreign person located outside the U.S. So if the income falls in any of these three categories, that income for the U.S. corporation is calculated at a lower rate than the current 21% U.S. corporate rate. Effectively, those tax rates on that type of income will be 13.125% through 2025, and then increases to 16.406% starting in 2026. So that's, uh, that's kind of a, an overview of, of the key provisions that we, that we just got in the international arena. So you've talked about these new provisions, guilty, beat, 
FDII, and you mentioned a little bit about how they work generally. Anything else that you want to share about how those provisions work? And then also you referenced some uh, surprising interactions. Anything else you want to share about that? Well, we've heard to guilty, so let me start with that. You know, guilty is intended to tax immediately as, a, as opposed to being able to defer a portion of a 10% or greater U.S. shareholders' earnings from a foreign corporation that do not relate to returns from tangible property, so i.e. intangible property, if it's not, if it's not related to tangible property. But such returns are measured by taking 10% of the shareholder's portion of its tax basis in the tangible property. So everything in excess of this 10% return minus certain allowable deductions is now taxable currently in the U.S. And the rate of tax on this income is 10.5%. So that's basically half of the 21% new U.S. corporate tax rate. Uh, that rate does increase to 13.125% of said earlier starting in the 2000. 26. Um, the tax can be offset by reduced foreign tax credit. But what people are finding is when you run through that math and do the calculation um, and, the, and the way it interacts with other provisions, uh, such as the foreign tax credit rules, a U.S. multinational may end up owing significant additional tax under this guilty provision, even if it doesn't own what it considers intangibles offshore. Uh, and that income is not earned in a, quote, low tax rate jurisdiction. Um, so another way to say it is, you know, it's don't assume that guilty does not apply to to you and your business uh, just because of the name of guilty, that it has intangible and low, inc you know, low taxed income in the definition. Uh, many surprises to U.S. multinationals that it applies to them. Um, the other is the BEAT provision. Uh, it applies to payments made from a U.S. company to a related foreign party. And the types of payments affected by this provision generally consist of items that are, are included in SG&A as opposed to cost of goods sold. So there's a carve-out for cost of goods sold that those expenses are not caught up in the BEAT provisions. It's just the SG&A cost. And the tax rate on, on these items is 10%. It's actually 5% for 2018, and thereafter is 10% on, on the taxable income base that adds back the affected payments made to these related foreign parties. And when you do the calculation, you'll find it really operates more like a minimum tax where the U.S. company is required to pay the higher of its regular tax or the beat. The regular tax is your, your regular tax base times a 21% rate. Then you start with that uh, regular tax base. You add back these deductions I referred to to the foreign-related parties included in SG&A, and then you multiply that by the 10% rate, 5% for 18, and then you pay the higher of the two. Now, it's only applicable to companies that have a three-year average of gross receipts of over $500 million and also have a base erosion percentage of 3% or greater. It's actually 2% for certain banks and security dealers. That base erosion percentage is a complex calculation all on its own, but, uh, you know, basically it's the numerator is you take your payments 
to formulate a parties that are affected by this provision divided by all other pay all the other payments i mean all payments in total and if your percentage is three percent or greater and your receipts are over 500 million then this provision applies let's talk for a, a minute more about repatriation this is obviously a large uh, element of the tax reform something that's been debated in political spheres for a long time and in fact it's one of one of the few areas in tax reform that both uh, ends of the political spectrum seemed to agree on meaning let's do something to allow US companies to bring more of their money back to the US invest more in the US so uh, I it's it's a good thing that we see that the the political spheres came together here uh, explain to the listeners the deemed repa repatriation provision. Absolutely. It's an appointed provision as it will likely affect all U.S. multinationals. The provision is referred to as the transition tax as it is needed to transition from the worldwide system that I referred to earlier, where foreign earnings were generally not taxed until repatriated, to the system that we have going forward, which is really one of current inclusion, as I expressed earlier. The transition tax rule requires a U.S. shareholder that owns at least 10% of the vote or value of a foreign sub to pay tax on his pro rata share of such foreign subs, earnings and profits that have accumulated since after 1986. And the amount of the earnings and profits to calculate that amount, it's, the determination dates are either November 2nd, 2017, or December 31st, 2017, whichever is higher. So once you determine that amount, that is income to be reported as of the foreign sub's last tax year beginning before 2018. So for a calendar year taxpayer, that would be December 31st, 2017. And then that income is taxed under a two-tier system. It's 15.5% for the earnings and profits that relate to cash or cash equivalents held, and then 8% for all other earnings and profits that don't relate to cash or cash equivalents. Also note that the resulting transition tax can potentially be offset by available foreign tax credits, and an election can be made to pay the tax over an eight-year period. Got it. Thank you for that explanation. Maybe just a couple more quick questions. Uh, first one, key dates that companies should be aware of as it relates to compliance with these international provisions? There are a few dates that are key for most businesses. Um, really, you know, top of mind are the transition tax measurement dates, which are November 2nd and December 31st that I previously mentioned. Um, in addition, U.S. shareholders need to be focused on year ends of their foreign SOPs, is that what drives the year of the deemed repatriation of foreign earnings for the U.S. shareholder, as well um, as being the relevant date for measuring cash balances with respect to the transition tax, specifically, you know, how much of it is taxed at the 15.5% rate and versus the lower 8% rate. So, for example, if your foreign sub is calendar year end, um, the relevant date is that that income will be picked up. You'll do the calculation, and that will be picked up. Uh, in your 2017 um, tax return, make the election a pay it over eight years, um, but that first payment will be due 
uh, March 15th, 2018 for a calendar U.S. taxpayer. So March 15th is another key date uh, for calendar year and taxpayers. Obviously, this all is in addition to the actual effective date of the new tax rules, which key off of December 31st, 2017 in most cases. And then finally, I would also keep in mind that these rules will likely affect the way companies account for income taxes on their financial statements and related disclosure requirements. For example, on the recording of deferred tax assets or liabilities or the expected amount of the transition tax. So there are a lot of key days resulting from when one's financials are due. So these businesses were obviously watching these negotiations very carefully. Uh, they were now, they actually have the bill that they can look at. They're studying the provisions carefully. What should they be keeping their eye on on the horizon? Anything else coming out of Congress and the Treasury in the next coming months that you see? Well, Congress approved tax reform in record time, and the Treasury Department will be very busy in 2018 and beyond. Uh, the focus will be on definitional and computational guidance, as well as anti-abuse guidance. I think the Treasury will continue to prioritize guidance for areas that have immediate consequences, as well as consequences on one's financial statements. Um, the obvious one is transition tax, because that could be due in 2018, so we definitely expect to see guidance in that area. On the legislative front, the focus will be on reviewing the provisions and working on technical corrections that are necessary to ensure the intended operation of the new provisions, especially how they're supposed to interact with one another and the rest of the tax code, and where there's some surprises and unintended consequences uh, and need for clarity, we'll, we'll certainly see uh, quite a few um, technical corrections coming down the pipe. Having worked for Congress myself, I can tell you there are always technical corrections that are necessary. It doesn't matter how careful you are, whatever's done, there are always those unexpected and sometimes unanticipated consequences. So not a surprise that that's also true in this case, especially, as you said, banks, because it was done so quickly. Last question. We have covered a lot of ground here. There's obviously a lot of detail that we haven't been able to cover. Uh, what can our listeners do um, next? What should they do next, especially as it relates to international business? I would say to be aware of the myriad of unexpected interactions. These rules cannot be analyzed in silos and must be assessed holistically. Uh, you really need to factor in the company's entire business and legal structure. You know, this is a major change moving from a worldwide system to a modified territorial system. And I would say that one of the best ways to handle all this is through financial modeling. And again, in doing so, it must be done on a holistic approach. You can't accurately calculate the effects of one provision on a business without taking into account all the other provisions. And then after you have a good working financial model, you know, that's really where the fun begins. Uh, you start analyzing planning opportunities, including restructurings. Uh, brainstorming alternative business models and strategies. And I think the key takeaway here is that uh, this is not just a tax exercise. This will require significant engagement at the C-suite level and multiple parts of the business. 
And of course, I would end by saying I would recommend consulting with a tax advisor that has expertise in this area. Well, and you're one of those tax advisors. We're grateful that you would take time out of your very busy schedule, I'm sure, to uh, talk to us, to provide this expertise to our listeners um, right out of Washington, D.C. Thanks, Banks. Have a terrific day. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And don't forget to follow World Trade Center Utah on social media at WTC Utah. And tune into next month's podcast where we will be discussing an issue important to all of us, the issue of air quality.